Chapter 28, Part 1 of Gilbert Keith Chesterton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dick Bourgeois Doyle. Gilbert Keith Chesterton by Maisie Ward. Chapter 28, Part 1. Columbus. He wished to discover America. His gay and thoughtless friends who could not understand him, pointed out that America had already been discovered, I think they said by Christopher Columbus, some time ago, and that there were big cities of Anglo-Saxon people there already, New York and Boston, and so on. But the Admiral explained to them, kindly enough, that this had nothing to do with it. They might have discovered America, but he had not. From a fragment in the Colored Lands. In the chapter of his autobiography, The Incomplete Traveler, Chesterton has said, After all, the strangest country I ever visited was England. It was of the very essence of his philosophy that each one of us has to make again the discoveries of our ancestors if we are to be travelers and not trippers. The traveler sees what he sees. The tripper sees what he has come to see. Thus, Chesterton tried to discover each country that he had visited, and he records that the nearer countries are sometimes harder to discover than the more remote, for Poland is more akin to England than is France, Ireland more a mystery than Italy. France, Ireland, and supremely Palestine brought their contribution to that mental and spiritual development traced in earlier chapters. On Ireland, Rome, Jerusalem, and the United States, he wrote books. It may really be said that on the States he wrote two books, for in the volume of essays, Sidelights on New London and Newer York, which followed his second visit, he showed a much greater understanding than in What I Saw in America. His first visit took place in 1921-22, his second in 1930. On the first trip, Francis kept clippings of almost all their interviews. Gilbert himself said that while the headlines in American newspapers became obscure in their violent efforts to startle, what was written underneath the headlines was usually good journalism, and the press cuttings of this tour bear out his remark. Interviewers report accurately and with a good deal of humor. Sketches of G.K.'s personal appearance abound, and if occasionally they contradict one another in detail, they yet contrive to convey a vivid and fairly truthful impression of the leonine head, the bulky form, the gestures and mannerisms. That a man of letters and lecturer should choose to wear proudly not one of these titles, but that of journalist, was pleasing and flattering to the brotherhood. The atmosphere of the tour is best conveyed by rather copious quotation. A crowd of journalists met him at the boat. One of them writes of his voluminous figure, quite imposing when he stands up, though not so abundantly Johnsonian as his pictures lead one to expect. He has cascades of gray hair above a pinkly beaming face, and a rather straggly blonde mustache and eyes that seem frequently to be taking up infinity in a serious way. His falsetto laugh, prominent teeth, and general aspect are rather Rooseveltian. Chesterton, who accompanied Mrs. Chesterton, and who will deliver a lecture soon in Boston on the ignorance of the educated, said he did not expect to go further west than Chicago, since having seen both Jerusalem and Chicago, I think I shall have touched on the extremes of civilization. In the event, he visited Omaha and Oklahoma City, and went south as far as Nashville, Tennessee. Possibly Frances had thought she would pass unnoticed, but in fact, besides constant photographs of the pair, 
The lynx eye of the interviewer was upon her as much as upon him. On arrival in New York, he shook hands with some half-dozen customs officials who welcomed into the city on their own behalf. The impression given by Mr. Chesterton as he moved majestically along the pier or on the ship was one of huge bulk. To the ordinary-sized people on the pier, he seemed to blot out the liner in the river. Mrs. Chesterton was busy with the baggage. My wife understands these things, he said with a sweep of his stick. I don't. In order to get the two figures into the same picture, one of the newspaper photographers requested Mr. Chesterton to sit in a big armchair while his wife stood beside him. When they were settled in the required pose, he exclaimed, I say, I don't like this. People will think I am a German. Another newspaper remarks, he was accompanied by his wife, who looked very small beside him. She attended to the baggage examination, opening trunks and bags, while her husband delivered a short essay on the equality of men and women in England since the war. This reporter was perhaps not without irony, but if you actually happen to like that, G.K. must have seen the joke too, for he has a similar situation in the first scene of his play, The Judgment of Dr. Johnson. The same reporter adds that Chesterton speaks in essays, so that his interviewers received a brief essay instead of a direct reply to a leading question. We next come upon them in their New York hotel. I found, with Mrs. Chesterton at the Biltmore, this big, gentle, leonine man of letters, six feet of him and two hundred odd pounds. There is a delightful story of how an American, driving with him through London, remarked, Everyone seems to know you, Mr. Chesterton. Yes, mournfully responded the gargantuan author, and if they don't, they ask. He really doesn't look anything as fat as his caricatures make him. However, he has a head big enough to go with his massive tallness. His eyes are brilliant English blue behind the big-rimmed eyeglasses, his wavy hair steel gray, his heavy mustache bright yellow. Physically, he is the crackling electric spark of the heaven, home, and mother party. The only man who can give the cleverest radical debaters a Roland for their Oliver. In subsequent interviews, G.K.'s height grew to six foot three and his weight to 300 pounds, which was surely closer to the mark. His mannerisms were greatly remarked. Mr. Chesterton speaks clearly in a rather high-pitched voice. He accompanies his remarks with many nervous little gestures. His hands, at times, stray into his pockets. He leans over the reading desk as if he would like to get down into the audience and make it a sort of heart-to-heart -heart talk. Mr. Chesterton's right hand spent a restless and rather disturbing evening. It would start from the reading desk at which he stood and fall to the points of that vast waistcoat which inspired the description of him as a fellow of infinite vest. It would wander aimlessly a moment about his, stomach is a word that is taboo among the polite English, his equator, and then shift swiftly to the rear until the thumb found the hip pocket. There, the hand would rest a moment to return again to the reading desk and to describe once more the quarter circle. Once in a while, it would twist a ring upon the left hand. Once in a while, it would be clasped behind the broad back, but only for a moment. To the hip pocket and back again was its sentry go, and it was a faithful soldier. Several interviewers remark on the unexpected caliber of his voice. He himself spoke of it as the most that came forth from the mountain. One would never suspect him of being our leading American bestseller. His accent, mannerisms, and dress are pro-Piccadilly, 
and he likes his oolong with a lump of sugar. He thinks with his cigar, a black London cheroot. He, Gilbert K. Chesterton, was sipping a cup of tea expertly brewed by Mrs. Chesterton when a reporter yesterday entered his room at the Blackstone in Chicago. Before he submitted to interrogation, he lighted the cigar. My muse, he explained, a Parnassian pleasure. Tobacco smoke is the ichor of mental life. Some men write with a pencil, others with a typewriter. I write with my cigar. Throughout the interview, he was profoundly concerned, not with the subjects under discussion, but with the black cheer root. Seven times it went out. Seven times he relighted it. The eighth time he tossed it away. When asked which of his works he considered the greatest, he said, I don't consider any of my works in the least great. Slang, he said, is too sacred and precious to be used promiscuously. Its use should be led up to reverently, for it expresses what the king's English could not. Seeing and hearing a man like Gilbert Keith Chesterton, said a Detroit newspaper, makes a meal for the imagination that no reading of books by him or about him can accomplish. He spoke Sunday in Orchestra Hall on the ignorance of the educated. It grows more difficult as his tour progresses, he admits, and the lecture, he insists, grows worse. His thesis is that the besetting evil of all educated people is that they tend to substitute theories for things. The uneducated man never makes this mistake. He states the simple fact that he sees a German drinking beer. He does not say, there is a Teuton consuming alcohol. At Toronto, the chairman, a professor of English, thought that there must have been an error in the title as printed, and announced that Mr. Chesterton would speak on the ignorance of the uneducated. Another Detroit newspaper quotes from the lecture, There is a deeper side to such fallacies. The whole catastrophe of the Great War may be traced to the racial theory. If people had looked at peoples as nations in places of races, the intolerable ambition of Prussia might have been stopped before it attained the captaincy of the South German states. The only other lecture subjects mentioned are Shall We Abolish the Inevitable and the Perils of Health? There are innumerable caricatures. One by Cosmo Hamilton is accompanied with a story of how he once debated with Chesterton. The subject was There is no law in England. G.K. made so overwhelming a case that Hamilton decided the only way of making reply possible was to twist the subject, making it There are no laws in England and go off in 1,000 tangents like a worried terrier. To hear Chesterton's howl of joy when he twigged how I had slipped out, to see him double himself up in an agony of laughter at my personal insults, to watch the effect of his sportsmanship on a shocked audience who were won to myth by his intense and peahen-like quirks of joy, was a sight and a sound for the gods. Probably Chesterton has forgotten this incident, but I haven't and never will. And it carried away from the room a respect and admiration for this tomboy among dictionaries, this philosophical Peter Pan, this humorous Dr. Johnson, this kindly and gallant cherub, this profound student and wise master, which has grown steadily ever since. In the Daily Sketch, Hamilton later described G.K. speaking in this debate. During the whole inspired course of his brilliant reasoning, he caught the little rivulets which ran down his face, and just as they were about to drop from the first of his several chins, 
flicked them generously among the disconcerted people who sat actually at his feet. From time to time, too, unaware of this, he grasped deep into his pockets and rattled coins and keys, going from point to point, from proof to proof, until the Constitution of England was quite devoid of law and out from under his waistcoat bulged a line of a shirt. It was monstrous, gigantic, amazing, deadly, delicious. Nothing like it has ever been done before or will ever be seen, heard, and felt like it again. A clever caricature depicts Dickens in one corner, his arms full of bricks, hammers, and jagged objects labeled American Notes. The rest of the picture is an immense drawing of a smiling Chesterton, his arms full of roses labeled Kind Words for America. He is pointing at Dickens and saying, America must have changed a great deal since then. Not only Gilbert, but also Francis, was constantly interviewed. I tell them, one interview quotes her as saying, that I didn't know I was the wife of a great man till I came to America. Never bothered me before. This coming from one of those English wives, so popularly portrayed as representing the acme of submission, was delightful. A slight, slim little figure, looking slighter and slimmer in the wake of her overshadowing husband, and an outward appearance of unsurpassed mildness and meekness, which her conversation readily dispelled. The wife of this delightful Englishman of letters presented a very intimate Chestertonian paradox. Francis kept a diary of which almost the first entry is, So far my feelings towards this country are entirely hostile. But it would be unfair to judge too soon. We have refused all invitations. It's the only thing to do. This idea they must have abandoned. For one paper after Gilbert's death describes him as an immense success socially, but a big, bland failure as a lecturer. As the tour proceeds, the entries in the diary become more favorable. But unlike her letters from Poland, where what she liked best was anything really Polish, the diary shows Francis as singling out for approval those things approximately English. For example, houses where she stayed in Boston and Philadelphia. She hated the hustle, heat, and crowds, and the diary is full of remarks about her exhaustion. G.K. commented in one interview on the different conception of a club in England and in America. While groups of men entertained him, Women's clubs were entertaining his wife, but an English club is really a promoter of unsociability, and while the English woman in her club does not, perhaps, stare into vacancy with the same fervor, fixity, and ferocity as the English man, still there's something of the sort, you know. After a lecture in Philadelphia, a lady asked him, Mr. Chesterton, what makes women talk so much? Heaving himself out of his chair, he answered only, God, madam. Two further caricatures were an impression drawn by Will Coyne for the New York Evening Post of Chesterton as Porthos of the pen, and another drawn for the New York Herald by Stuart Davis of Chesterton supplying Paradoxogen to the world. This was accompanied by a poem called Paradoxogen by Edward Anthony. Oh, Gilbert, I know there are many who like your talks on the darkness of light. The shortness of length and the weakness of strength, and the one on the lowness of height. My neighbor keeps telling me how I adore his legality of the illicit, and I also have a liking intense for his striking obscurity of the explicit. But I am moved. What's the reason of well? The same I intend to expound. Some evening next week, when I'm going to speak, 
on the shallowness of the profound. Everyone who goes to America for a short time, said G.K., is expected to write a book, and nearly everybody does. In accordance with this convention, he wrote What I Saw in America. He did see a great deal. The same imagination that had found the medieval aspect of Jerusalem saw many elements missed out, not only by the ordinary tourist, but by people themselves who live nearest to them. Thus, he keenly appreciated the traditional elements in Philadelphia, Boston, and Baltimore. In coming into some of these more stable cities of the States, I felt something quite sincerely of that historic emotion which is satisfied in the eternal cities of the Mediterranean. I felt in America what many Americans suppose can only be felt in Europe. I have seldom had that sentiment stirred more simply and directly than when I saw from afar off, above the vast gray labyrinth of Philadelphia, Great Penn, upon his pinnacle, like the graven figure of God who had fashioned a new world, and remembered that his body lay buried in a field at the turning of the lane, a league from my own door. In Baltimore, the Catholic history appealed to him yet more strongly, and, invited to visit Cardinal Gibbons, he felt himself touching the end of a living chain. In Boston, much more beautiful than its name, he accompanied again with the autocrat and recalled how, in his own youth, English and American literature seemed to be one thing. Indeed, he was there reminded even of English things that have largely vanished from England. Washington, he saw both as a beautiful city and an idea, a sort of paradise of impersonal politics without personal commerce. And in Nashville, Tennessee, it was, with a sort of intensity of feeling, that he found himself before a dim and faded picture, and from the dark canvas looked forth the face of Andrew Jackson, watchful like a white eagle. The things Chesterton chose for description all have relevance to the main thesis of the book, which has often been missed and which emerges most clearly in the first and last chapters. He insists always that he writes as a foreigner, and indeed repeats frequently that it is by keeping his own distinct nationality that Englishmen and Americans will best understand and like one another. But he writes also as a man not unconscious of history. Thus writing, the older cities represent to him one trend in the States and New York another. I am sorry to say that he does not appreciate New York as he ought, because of his dislike of cosmopolitanism. Its beauty he sees as breathtaking, not solid and abiding, but a kind of fairyland. The lights on Broadway evoke from him the exclamation that what a glorious garden of wonders this would be for anyone who was lucky enough to be unable to read. And he imagines a simple peasant who fancies that he must be announcing in letters of fire, liberty, equality, fraternity. It must be put up on occasion of some great national feast, whereas there are but advertising signs put up to make money. The skyline seemed to him mostly lovely, vertical lines that suggest a sort of rush upwards, as of great cataracts topsy-turvy. The strong daylight finds everywhere the broken edges of things and the sort of hues we see in newly turned earth or the white sections of trees. He feels the intense imaginative pleasure of those dizzy turrets in dancing fires. But he ends with a note that really spoilt New York for him. If those nightmare buildings were really all built for nothing, how noble they would be. Advertisement, big business monopoly, might have invaded the old, traditionary cities of America as they had those of England. But New York existed, he felt, as a new and startling expression of them. 
They shrieked in every light and from every skyscraper. The whole question of America was, would the older, simpler, really great historical tradition win, or would it be defeated by the new and towering evil? He has an interesting chapter on the countryside, finding hope in the considerable extension of small ownership among the farmers and in the houses built from the growing material that wood is. But he is again depressed at the reflection that the culture of the countryside is not its own, but imported from the towns, therefore itself largely commercialized. Roaming over the world in search of his examples, Chesterton sees the ideal of the early Republicans as dead in the republics of today, and nowhere more dead than in America. It would be useless, he feels, to invoke Jefferson or Lincoln in the modern world against the tyranny of wage slavery or in favor of racial justice because the bridge of brotherhood had broken down in the modern mind. Jefferson, the deist, said the sight of slavery in his country made him tremble, remembering that God is just. But the modern, who has lost these absolute standards, has grown dizzy with degree and relativity. Hence, came the same terrible peril in both England and America, that in the eyes of the new plutocracy, the idea of manhood has gone. There were different sorts of apes, but there was no doubt that we were the superior sort. Only in one direction did he see any real hope. The new dreams of the 18th century had gone, but the ancient dogmas of the Catholic Church remained. Catholics might forget brotherhood, like their fellows, but the Catholic type of Christianity had riveted itself irrevocably to the manhood of all men. The church would always continue to ordain Negroes and canonize beggars and laborers. Where its faith was fixed by creeds and councils, it could not save itself even by surrender. There is no basis for democracy except in a dogma about the divine origin of man. I've put that final sentence in capitals, for it is the climax both of Gilbert's thinking about America and of one of the most important trains of thought that brought him to the home of liberty secured for the human race by dogma, that is to say, by revealed truth. He went home to be received into the Catholic Church, as I have earlier related. What I saw in America is of special importance in relation to later discussions in G.K.'s Weekly. While the journalist seemed convinced on his first visit that he had nothing but roses to throw and compared him favorably to Dickens, a collection of quotations could be made from G.K.'s Weekly of a quite opposite kind. Yet I do not think he ever attacks America as much as he attacks England. He was himself much amused at finding he was expected to be either for America or against America, both of which attitudes appeared to him absurd. In that sense, he was neither for nor against his own country. He liked Americans. He disliked certain trends in America. Because he loved England, he disliked the same trends even more in England. Certain things in modern civilization which he hated, he did not regard as primarily American. American comfort to him seemed acute discomfort. He thought every American lives in an airless furnace in the middle of which he sits and eats lumps of ice. He had a great hatred of intelligence tests, which he called the palpable balderdash of irresponsible Yankee boomsters. It is really one of the maladies of American democracy to be swept by these prairie fires of pseudoscientific fads and throw itself into eugenics or anthropometric inquiry with the buoyancy of babies. He believed that there was more democracy in America than in England. 
but he hated what he called the glare of American advertisement. He spoke of a common thief like the American millionaire, but he certainly did not exclude the English millionaire from the same indictment. His whole view of advertisement reaches a peak in an article entitled, If You Have Smiles, GK's Weekly, December 10th, 1927. We read the other day an absolutely solemn and almost tender piece of advice in a leading American magazine about the preservation of beauty and health. It was intended quite seriously. After describing in most complicated detail how the young woman of today, well known to be enamored of all that is natural and free, is to strap up her head and face every night as if it had to be bandaged after an accident, it proceeds to say, with most refined American accent, with the face thus fixed in smile formation. But we have difficulty about taking this serious advice of American beauty business even so seriously as to meditate on its social menace. The prospect of such a world of idiots ought to depress us, but no, it is no good. Our faces are fixed in smile formation when we think of that American. He repeated often how much he liked the inhabitants of Main Street, grievously wronged by Sinclair Lewis. American ideals are not nearly so nice as American realities. We lament not so much what Babbitt is as what he is trying to be. What he is is a simple and kindly man. What he's trying to be is the abomination of desolation, the man who made salesmanship an art, the man who would not stay down, the man who got the million-dollar post after taking our correspondence course, the man who learned social charm in six lessons. January 14, 1928. At the time of the depreciation of the franc, Bellock's articles in GK's Weekly echoed in the leaders, pointed to finance, especially American finance, as the criminal that was forcing down the French currency. An American correspondent in the paper attacked these attacks on the ground that they were inspired by British imperialism. Chesterton felt a little hard to be at this date, confused with Kipling. He replied that his correspondent committed the blunder of an extravagant and excessive admiration for England. He speaks of that tremendous procession that passed through Paris, literally an army of cripples. It was a march of all those walking units, those living fragments of humanity that had been left by the long stand of five years upon the French frontiers. A devastated area that passed endlessly like a river. They illustrate the main fact that France was in the center of that far-flung fighting line of civilization, that it was upon her that the barbarian quarrel concentrated, and that it is a historical fact which the foolish vanity of many Englishmen, as well as of many Americans, is perpetually tempted to deny. Our critic is therefore quite beside the mark if he imagines that I am trying to score off his country out of a cheap jealousy on behalf of my own. My jealousy is for justice and for a large historical understanding of this great passage in history. My own country won glory enough in that and other fields to make it quite unnecessary for any sane Englishman to shut his eyes to Europe in order to brag about England. I have not the faintest doubt what Thomas Jefferson would have said if he had been told that a few financial oligarchs who happened to live in New York were beating down the French wealth and had then seen pass before him that awful panorama of the wrecks of the French Republican army, heart-shaking like a resurrection of the dead. I do not admit, therefore, that in supporting the French peasants and soldiers against the money-dealers and wire-pullers of the town, I am attacking America or even merely defending France. G.K.'s Weekly, September 1st, 1926. 
On November 6th and 13th, 1926, he writes two articles on the Yankee and the Chinaman, in which he contrasts the philosophic spirit with the so-called scientific. Like Bishop Barnes in England wanting to analyze the consecrated host, Edison was reported in America as having said that he would find out if there was a soul by some scientific test. Any philosophic Chinaman would know what to think of a man who said, I have got a new gun that will shoot a hole through your memory of last Monday, or I have a saw sharp enough to cut up the cube root of 666, or I will boil your affection for Aunt Susan until it is quite liquid. In 1927, Gilbert, Francis, and Dorothy spent a month in Poland, where immense enthusiasm was shown for the man who had consistently proclaimed Poland's greatness and its true place in Europe. Invited by the government, all the hostility I received, he says, was far too much alive to remind me of anything official. One of the multitude of unwritten books of which G.K. dreamed was a book about Poland. The Poles and the English were, he felt, alike in many things, but the Englishmen had never been given the opportunity to understand the Pole. We knew nothing of their history and did not understand the resurrection we had helped to bring about. The nonsense talked in the newspapers when they discussed what they called the Polish Corridor was only possible from want of realization of what Poland had been before she was rent in three by Prussia, Austria, and Russia. Thus, too, we did not realize the self-evident fact that the Poles always have a choice of evils. Pilsudski told him that of the two, he preferred Germany to Russia while Demosky voiced the more general opinion in telling him that of the two, he preferred Russia to Germany. For the moment, at any rate, tortured Poland was herself and incredibly happy. Revival in this agricultural country had been amazingly swift. Peasant proprietors abounded and lived well in 12 acres or so, while even laborers possessed plots of land and a cow or two. The Penn Club dinner, Francis wrote in a letter to her mother, was, I fancy, considered by the Poles a huge success. If numbers indicate anything, it certainly was. I found it a little embarrassing to have to eat hot kidneys and mushrooms standing about with hundreds of guests, and this was only the preliminary to a long dinner that followed and refreshments that apparently continued until two o'clock in the morning. The speeches were really perfectly marvelous and delivered in English quite colloquial and very witty in showing a detailed knowledge of Gilbert's works, which no Englishman of my acquaintance possesses. Gilbert made an excellent, in fact, a very eloquent speech in reply, which drew forth thunders of applause. Their hosts drove the Chestertons all over the country and showed them home life on the little farms, home industries, and arts, brightly woven garments and pottery for use, not for exhibition, and the great historic scenes of Poland's history. With the scene he remembered most vividly, Gilbert's musings on Poland conclude. They were visiting a young nobleman who excused the devastation of his home by Bolshevik soldiers in the heat of battle, but added, There is only one thing I really resent. He led us out to a long avenue lined with poplars, and at the end of it was a statue of the Blessed Virgin, with the head and the hands shot off. But the hands had been lifted, and it is a strange thing that the very mutilations seem to give more meaning to the attitude of intercession, asking mercy for the merciless race of men. Autobiography, page 330. Karl Kapik, who had long wanted Chesterton to visit Prague, wrote mournfully, You wrote me that it would be difficult for you to come to Prague this spring, but it was in the newspapers that you were last month in Warsaw. Why in heaven's sake did you not come to Prague on this occasion? 
What a pity for us. Now we are waiting for a compensation. Two earlier letters had shown him eager for contributions from Chesterton for a leading review. Another delightful letter is dated December 24th, no year given. My dear Mr. Chesterton, it is just Christmas Eve. My friends presented me with some of your books, and I cannot omit to thank you for the consolation and trust I found there, as already so many times. Be blessed, Mr. Chesterton. I wrote you twice without getting an answer, but it is Christian to insist, and so I write you again. Please, would you be so kind to tell me if it shall be possible for you to come next year to Prague? Our pen club is anxious to invite you as our guest of honor. If you would like to come next spring, I beg you to be my guest. You are fond of old things. Prague is one. You shall find here so many people who cherish you. I like myself as no other writer. It's for your sake that being in London, I went to Habit in Notting Hill. And it is for your sake that I liked it. I cannot believe that I should not meet you again. Please come to Prague. I wish you a happy new year, Mr. Chesterton. You must be happy making your readers happier. You are so good. Yours sincerely, Carl Capet. He never alas got to Prague or to many other countries that wanted him. There are letters asking him to lecture in Australia, to lecture again in the USA, in South America, to make them aware of English thought and literature. The Argentine intelligentsia says Philip Gadala is acutely aware of your writings. Local professors terrified me by asking me on various occasions to explain the precise position which you occupied in our Catholic youth. A visit from you would mean a great deal to British intellectual prestige in these parts. End of chapter 28, part 1.